Chapter 10 Eternal Life or the Wrath of God Which will you choose? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John chapter 3 verse 36 We have in these words of God a most vivid contrast. I know of no verse in the Bible that is more full of glory in the first part and more full of darkest despair in the last part. It presents God's alternatives, alternatives open to all. Eternal life for all those who believe on the Son, and the wrath of God for those who refuse to believe on Him. It leaves each one of us to choose which we shall have. One of the most meaningful and glorious phrases that was ever uttered is that which was so often on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life. One of the most awful and appalling phrases ever uttered is that other phrase which occurs in our text, the wrath of God. We cannot put it into words or even conceive in our imagination the wealth of glory there is wrapped up in those two words, eternal life. Nor can we put into words or conceive by human imagination the depth of dishonor, horror, shame, woe, and despair that is wrapped up in that other phrase, the wrath of God. It is between these two, the unutterably glorious eternal life and the immeasurably and unspeakably awful wrath of God, that each of us is called to make his choice. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The question then that confronts each of us in this place is this, eternal life or the wrath of God? Which shall it be? Which shall I choose? That should not be a difficult question to settle. If any man is not a hopeless fool or an utter maniac, he will certainly say, Give me eternal life. As for the wrath of God, Jesus, thou Son of God, save me from that. But that is not the choice that some of you really are making today. You are deliberately turning your backs on eternal life, and you have been turning your backs on eternal life for years. Some of you are deliberately choosing the wrath of God, and you have been choosing the wrath of God for years. How can we doubt the existence of a personal devil of great cunning and great power when we see how men are so utterly blinded and deceived by his cunning and so completely enslaved mentally by his power that they choose the wrath of God rather than eternal life? The existence of such a devil as the Bible presents is the only rational explanation for this indisputable fact. You question the existence of a personal devil, yet you yourselves are living demonstrations of his existence and of his marvelous cunning and his exceedingly great power. The Things Contrasted Now let's look more closely at the two possibilities that are put in such vivid contrast. We cannot possibly conceive of the glory of the one or the horror of the other, but we can get some hint of what they mean. Eternal life. What is it? In the first place, eternal life is real life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, Lay hold on eternal life. The Revised Version translates this differently. It reads, Lay hold on the life which is life indeed. The Revised Version gives the correct translation, and that is what eternal life is, 
life indeed. Life not merely in seeming, but life also in reality. Much that we call life is not really life at all, but death. Many a young man or woman plunges into a life of gaiety, worldliness, and sin, and cries as they do it, I am going to see life for myself. No, you are not going to see life, you are going to see death. Paul was right when he said, She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 6 It is really God who says it. God speaking through Paul. Life is not what you see in the saloon with its revelry. That is death. Life is not what you see in the gambling house with its strange fascination and intense excitement. That is death. Life is not what you see in the theater with its appeal to your lust and your impure fantasy, with its many times married actresses with their fair faces and foul hearts, and with actors who are so often the wreckers of happy homes. That is death. Life is not what you see in the movies, with their constant appeal to all that is vulgar and vile in men and women. That is death. Life is not what you see in the ballroom, where supposedly decent women permit a familiarity of approach and contact that is nowhere else permitted except by the most indecent women. That is death. Life is not what you see in the costly receptions of the rich with their vain displays of jewels, fine apparel, and disgusting and shocking immodesty in dress. That is death. Anywhere and everywhere, a life of sin is death. A life of selfishness is death. A life of pleasure is death. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. A life of worldliness is death. These are not life. They are death. But eternal life really is life. It is life indeed. It deserves the name life. And no one really knows what life is who has not received eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is life indeed. In the second place, eternal life is fullness of life. It is life abundant. Jesus once said, I came that they may have life, and may have it abundantly. John chapter 10 verse 10. Eternal life is life full of beauty, full of peace, full of joy, full of power, full of glory, abundant life, abounding life, overflowing life. In the third place, eternal life is satisfying life. No life but eternal life can ever satisfy the longing and capacity of these souls of ours made in the likeness of God. No life that is purely earthly, no life that we inherit from our ancestors, no matter how fine they may have been and how refined in character, can satisfy our souls. No life but the life we derive directly from God when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ no life but eternal life can satisfy the infinite yearnings of these spirits of ours made originally in the image of God. Even in the most depraved of us, our infinite longings retain traces of that divine image in which we were made. Give me wealth, one man cries, and I shall be satisfied. Give me power, another cries, and I shall be satisfied. Give me pleasure, another cries, and I shall be satisfied. Give me fame, another cries, and I shall be satisfied. No, you will not be satisfied with any of these, or with all of these. You would be better off to cry, Give me God, and I shall be satisfied. Give me eternal life, and I shall be satisfied. 
Oh, how many I have known to whom this world seemed to have given all that it had to give, but they were not satisfied. And how many I have known to whom this world had given very little of all it has to give, and yet they were satisfied, for they had God, and they had eternal life. In the fourth place, eternal life is life of highest knowledge. Our Lord brings that out in a wonderful way in an utterance that He made at one of the supreme moments of His life. In His prayer with His disciples the night before His crucifixion, as He lifted His eyes to heaven and spoke to the Father, He said, This is life eternal, that they should know Thee the only true God, and Him whom Thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. John chapter 17, verse 3. Eternal life is full knowledge of the Infinite One. The knowledge that the most educated scholar has gathered from books, the knowledge that the most intellectual philosopher has deduced for himself, or the knowledge that the most brilliant scientist has discovered as he studied the rocks beneath his feet or the stars above his head, is nothing compared to the knowledge that the humblest man or woman obtains who enters into eternal life. They receive knowledge of God, full knowledge of the Infinite One. In the fifth place, Eternal life is perfect life, completeness of life. It is life in its perfection, in its completeness. All other life than the eternal life which we receive when we receive Jesus Christ is partial, fragmentary, unbalanced, and incomplete. Eternal life is life perfected, filled out, perfectly balanced, and complete. We have a suggestion of this in the words of Paul to Timothy where he says, From a babe thou hast known the sacred writings which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 through 17. Here we see that a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ comes through the written word, and thus eternal life comes through the word, as John puts it. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John chapter 20 verse 31. And we further see that by receiving eternal life through the word, a man becomes complete. He obtains complete life, eternal life. In the sixth place, eternal life is divine life, the very life of God imparted to us. The Apostle John says in his first epistle, And the life was manifested, that is, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have seen and bear witness and declare unto you the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. 1 John 1, verse 2. Eternal life, then, is the life of the infinitely holy and blessed God, the infinite life imparted to us. Oh, it is wonderful and amazing. Think of it. This is your privilege and my privilege. My privilege, a poor sinner, an ignoramus, a worm of the dust, one whose heart was once set upon the silly follies of the world and revolting sin, is to have the life of the blessed God the very life of God Himself, this infinite life imparted to me. In the seventh place, 
eternal life is endless life. Endlessness is not the most essential characteristic of eternal life, for its quality is more important than its duration, but nevertheless it is endless. I thank God it is. I thank God that He offers me a life that is not only infinite in its quality, but also endless in its duration. I cannot be satisfied with anything that ever comes to an end. I love flowers. I look with joy upon the little daisies in the grass, the pansy with its happy, sweetly speaking face, the lily of the valley in its modesty and purity and matchless beauty. I look upon the rose in its rich, superb splendor, the dearest of all flowers to me. But as I look upon an exquisite bunch of roses, sadness steals over me, for I cannot help but think of how soon they will fade. Leaf by leaf the roses fall, drop by drop the springs run dry. I love nature, especially the glorious beauty of a sunset in the mountains or by the sea. But as I look at the green and the crimson, the azure and the gold, and it seems as if the very gates of heaven were about to swing open, it all fades. Night descends and I am chilled and lonely. I love high and noble and ennobling human friendships in which I have been peculiarly favored of God. But a few years pass and they are broken by separation or by death, and it is all over. Nothing but a memory and a heartache remain. So it is with everything on earth. It ends. Thank God for something that never ends, something that always has the freshness of the dawn in it, something that stretches on and on and on into the boundless spaces of ever-increasing glory before you. Thank God for everlasting life. Such is eternal life, real life, fullness of life, satisfying life, life of highest knowledge, complete life, the life of God imparted to us, and life that never ends. Don't you desire it? Don't you desire it with an intensity that will not take no for an answer? I do. I would sacrifice everything I hold dear on earth to obtain it. I would still think I had made a good bargain even if it should cost me everything that men hold dear on earth. Thank God eternal life is mine. It is mine. It is mine. I have it now. I already have it in its beginnings, and I have the sure promise of its fullness. I shall never lose it. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. Will you have it too? The wrath of God. What is that? It is just what the words express. I have given a good deal of study to the etymology and the usage of the Greek word which is rendered wrath in this verse. It means the intense and settled displeasure of God, the intense displeasure of that infinitely holy being who created us and all things and has the absolute control of all the powers and forces of the universe. Every true and wise husband dreads the displeasure of his wife. That is, if it could be avoided, he would not do anything to incur her displeasure. Every true and wise citizen dreads the displeasure of his government. Every true son dreads the displeasure of his father. But how much more will every man of understanding and of character dread the wrath of God? The wrath of God. There is nothing more awful than that. 
to have the infinitely Holy One displeased with you, to have the Holy Being, before whom the seraphim veil their faces and cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, displeased with you, and to have the omnipotent and infinite ruler of the universe displeased with you, is a fearful thing. To have the Mighty One who holds the sun, moon, stars, and all the myriad systems of worlds of light that stud the endless expanse of heaven in the hollow of His hand, as they move through space with incredible momentum displeased with you, is a terrible thing. To have the infinitely wise ruler and shaper of the whole history of this tiny ball that we call earth displeased with you, and yes, to have God displeased with you, to incur His wrath, His intense, deep-seated, settled displeasure, that is awful. That is horrifying. But that is certainly what stares in the face of many a man and many a woman here, the wrath of God. Gather your thoughts together. Think of it. Will you have it? Will you choose it? Here then are before you the two alternatives. On the one hand is eternal life, real life, fullness of life, satisfying life, life of highest knowledge, complete life, the life of God, never-ending life, blessedness and glory, eternal life. On the other hand is the wrath of God, the intense, deep-seated, settled displeasure of the All-Holy One, the Maker and Governor of the universe. Which will you choose? If you choose the latter, someday you will be among those who say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. Eternal Life or the Wrath of God Now we come to the question, and it is a tremendously important question. By what act do we determine whether eternal life or the wrath of God is to be our portion? Note God's own answer to this immensely important question. It is not the answer of all modern philosophers. It is not the answer of all modern theologians. It is not the answer of all modern preachers, but it is God's answer, and therefore it is true. That answer is in the words of our text. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Nothing could be more plain, simple, or unmistakable than this answer. The one and only act by which we get eternal life is the act of believing on the Son of God, believing on Jesus Christ. The one and only act by which we lose eternal life and bring upon ourselves the abiding wrath of God is by refusing to believe on Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth on Jesus Christ gets eternal life. There it stands in God's sure word in language a child can understand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, regardless of who he is or what he is, and regardless of what he has been or what he has done. He may be a millionaire or he may be a pauper. He may be a scholar or he may be unable to read or write. He may be moral, upright, and clean, or he may be immoral and dishonest and vile. But the moment any man, woman, or child believes on the Son, believes on Jesus Christ, that person 
gets eternal life. They get the actual experience of the beginnings of that life, and the fullness that awaits them in the world to come is assured. Any man or woman may get eternal life right now. You may get eternal life before you listen to another page of this audiobook, if you desire to do so. And you can have that perfect assurance that comes from knowing that you have God's own word for your guarantee. But what does it mean to believe on the Son of God? It is to accept God's testimony about Jesus Christ that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is to act on that testimony by putting your full and absolute confidence in Him who is so entirely worthy of your confidence. It is to accept Him to be all that He offers Himself to be, your crucified Savior who bore every one of your sins in His own body on the cross and thus settled them. It is to accept your risen Savior who has all power in heaven and on earth and is able to keep you day by day. It is to take Him as your absolute Lord and Master, to whom you surrender the entire control of your thoughts and life. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is putting your confidence in Him. It leads you to entrust to Him your salvation and to entrust to Him your whole self. Believing on the Son of God will lead you to go right to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and say to Him, Lord Jesus, I believe God's testimony about you that you are God's Son, that you bore my sins in your own body on the cross, and that you rose again and are a living Savior today. I commit myself to you to save and keep and guide and teach and govern me, to do what you will with me. I put my trust in you to save me from the guilt of sin by your atoning death. I put my trust in you to save me from the power of sin day by day by your resurrection power. I surrender to you the entire control of my life and thoughts. It is this unreserved commitment of yourself to Jesus Christ that brings eternal life. And when you make it, you can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 Will you take that decisive step? You have every reason for believing on the Son of God. The testimony that He really is the Son of God, God's own testimony to that fact, is unanswerable. Will you yield to the testimony and believe on Him? Now, what is the act by which we bring upon ourselves the wrath of God? Oh, the answer to that is so plain. Here it is. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The Revised Version renders it, He that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The truth is in both the authorized and the revised versions, but neither the authorized nor the revised gives the exact force of the word which is translated believeth not in the one case and obeyeth not in the other. The word so translated means to refuse to be persuaded, to refuse to believe, so, exactly translated, it would be, But he that refuseth to believe, or disbelieveth the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The thought is that those who have heard of him and do not believe are responsible for not believing, for they have refused to be persuaded by the evidence. 
They have refused to yield to the evidence. They have refused to believe. That is the exact truth about everyone who goes without believing on the Son of God, without putting their confidence in the Son of God, and without accepting the Son of God as their Savior, their Lord, their King. You have had abundant evidence that He is the Son of God. You have had abundant evidence that He can save from the guilt and power of sin, but due to love of the world, love of sin, fear of man, or some other reason, you have refused to believe. You have not believed on the Son. Well, if you do not believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, if you continue to refuse to yield to the evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, with that real faith that leads to obedience to His Word and trust in Him, then you will not get eternal life. No, not only that, but you will also get the wrath of God. Do you believe Jesus Christ? Do you believe Him with that real faith that leads you to act upon what He says, with that faith that leads you to put your unhesitating confidence in His promises and yield unquestioning obedience to His commands and put your confidence in Him? If not, the wrath of God abideth on you. It makes absolutely no difference who or what you are. You may not be a criminal or a moral monster. You may not be crude, selfish, and dishonest. You may not be contemptible and mean. You may be refined, sophisticated, and highly cultured. You may be a university student or a university professor. You may be amiable, gentlemanly, or ladylike. You may be true, kind, and generous. But if you do not believe on the Son of God and refuse to be persuaded by His words to put confidence in Him as your atoning Savior, your risen Savior, and are not ready to act upon His every word, then the wrath of God abideth on you. The deep, settled, intense wrath of God is resting upon every man and woman, young and old, who does not put confidence in Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of God, and who does not stand ready to act upon his every word. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Oh, it is awful, awful, awful. If we could represent God's wrath by a black thundercloud and see things as they really are, we would see a blacker storm cloud than human eyes ever beheld, hanging over the head of many a man and many a woman today, ready to break. I have been an eyewitness of some terrific storms on sea and land. I was once in a house that was struck by lightning, and at another time I was standing in the doorway of another house when the lightning struck and splintered a great oak a few feet away. A part of the lightning passed through the very door where I was standing. One summer at Northfield, I had to go out into an electrical storm to quiet a horse that was trembling like a leaf and take him from underneath a tree. In a short time, the lightning struck three times within sight of where I stood. But I had a dream one night, far more terrible than anything I ever saw in life. It was more than twenty years ago, but I remember it vividly, and recall the appalling horror that swept over me in the midst of the dream even now. Enormous bags of black, smoke-like cyclonic clouds with ragged edges rolled up full of wind and electricity, and every moment I expected to see one burst and shoot down awful death upon my poor devoted head with deafening reverberation. 
I believe that awful dream that made my blood fairly run cold even in my sleep is only a faint picture of every man and woman today who is without Christ. The wrath of God abideth on you. That awful storm cloud, full of lightning, thunder, death, shame, woe, and despair hangs over your head now, ready to burst. But God is long-suffering and merciful. He is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, and holds back the execution of His long-pent-up wrath. Even more, He offers you eternal life, real life, fullness of life, perfectly satisfying life, life of highest knowledge, complete life, His own life, endless life, infinite life, life of measureless joy and beauty and power and glory. Which will you have, eternal life or the wrath of God? Do I hear someone mutter, I do not like that kind of preaching, I do not believe it? Then you are giving the lie to God, for it is not I but God who says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. O men and women, there are two possibilities open before you today one infinitely glorious, the other inconceivably appalling, eternal life or the wrath of God. Which will you take?